Today's scriptures taken from Luke chapter 20, verse 27 to Luke chapter 21, verse 4. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats, in the synagogues, in the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Chapter 21 Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's word. Thank you, Eunice, uh, for reading God's Word for us. Just a reminder before we start, for those who have just joined us on the live stream or those that just join us in person here, please stay back after the service uh, for a special announcement. Well, good morning, beloved family and friends in Christ. A warm welcome also to our friends visiting with us for the first or second time. Uh, my name is Oliver, and I serve as a pastor with the elders team here at Grace Baptist Church. And let me pray for us before we start. Let us go before God in prayer. O Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Father God, as we gather to hear your word this morning, we pray that you show us Christ in your word. May we see the truth, beauty, and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts and our minds to receive your word so that the Holy Spirit working through your word might transform us so that as your church, we might be a living display of your glorious gospel. 
Jesus, we love you and praise you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. You know, we have seen political and Christian leaders fall in the past few months. And, and this has brought us much hurt, grief, and doubt, especially among the people that trusted and served them. We thought we knew who they were, but they were not who they claimed to be. It is important to know who we serve so that we can trust and serve them well. And the Gospel writer Luke addresses this question today in today's passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 27 to 21, verse 4. Who is Jesus Christ? If Jesus is who He claims to be, then in what way should you serve Him? Let's look at some context before we jump into this passage. Pastor Ian preached from Luke 19 two Sundays ago and covered the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, after a long journey, Jesus and His disciples had finally reached Jerusalem. And as Jesus entered the city, the people proclaimed Jesus as King. But they did not know what kind of King Jesus was. Luke 20 now has Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem. Pastor Eugene covered the first half of this chapter last week. And in this chapter, we, we saw Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders. And, and the conflicts clarified vital truth. Jesus is the King and God's beloved Son. We must submit to King Jesus, who comes with the authority of God's beloved Son. For today's passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 27 onwards, it continues with part two of Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. So if you're taking notes, the passage you'll be looking at can be divided into the following sections. We will be raised together with Jesus by the living God, Luke 20, 27 to 40. We will submit to Jesus Christ, son of David and David's Lord. This, this is comprised the four verses in Luke 20, verse 41 to 44. And lastly, we will serve Jesus Christ wholeheartedly without putting on a show. This is the last section from uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45 to 21, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to this passage in the Bible as we hear who Jesus is and in what way should we serve No questions are good. Asking the right question will help us understand better. However, my friends, have you been in situations when a person asks questions simply to undermine you or ridicule you? So they are not interested in actually the answer, they're just interested in asking the question to make fun of you. Enter the Sadducees, the next group of religious leaders. They question Jesus not to gain more understanding, but to undermine and ridicule Jesus. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, bro man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children, and the second and the third took her. 
And likewise, all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife would a woman be? For the seven had her as wife. The Sadducees were religious leaders, and, and they were the religious leaders now looking to find fault with Jesus. And they raised the issue of the resurrection. And in doing so, it finds them in opposition to the Pharisees because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Okay? They were an aristocratic group of priests who sympathized with the Roman rulers. They accepted only the Old Testament five, first five books as carrying authority and they disliked the Pharisees' oral traditions. And they tended to be very rationalistic and they were wealthy because they colluded with the Roman um, um, uh, Empire. But despite their differences with the Pharisees, when it came to Jesus, they joined the Pharisees in trying to bring Jesus down. And, and the Sadducees, you know, they had a standard playbook, they had a standard question that they liked to pose on the resurrection just to show how ridiculous it was. What they did was they drew on the provision of the Leverite marriage in the Old Testament. We see this in Genesis 38, Deuteronomy 25, Ruth 4. The idea of this was if a woman was a childless widow, the bro her brother-in-law should marry her to produce a son to carry on the family name. And this marriage also helped ensure that the widow would be cared for and provided for. So the Sadducees assumed that a man was to be the husband of one wife in heaven. You know, and they constructed this whole little uh, dilemma story of whose wife will she be. So the Sadducees began by noting the custom and then logically walking Jesus through the hypothetical story. Each of the seven marriages of this particular woman ends childless. And the child's absence triggers this whole Levite marriage process. But as you follow along, you can't help but feel that this story has a touch of humour. Because it shows that, you know, you get a feeling that marrying this woman means actually death. Okay? And then and finally, the woman dies. And then they pose the question, the question now emerges. After the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You know, after all, she had seven husbands. But my friends, the Sadducees here did not want an answer. Rather, they were convinced that this showed the lack of logic in a resurrection. And they also assumed that the afterlife is just like this life. You know, on the surface, this question, while seemingly ridiculous to us, is a crucial one for several reasons. Because some Jews, they did believe in the resurrection. Jesus himself predicted his resurrection to his disciples. And the resurrection itself is at the centre of what is the Christian hope. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, and verses 12 to 19 of the same chapter, where the Apostle Paul asserts that if Christ was not raised, our faith, is futile and in vain. So for all the joking and humour in the query, we must seriously address this question. And Jesus does address this question. Jesus, in His wisdom, 
turned the whole question around. And Jesus said to the Sadducees, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in a passage about the bush, where he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Jesus took on this question and gave two points. Jesus said that after life is not like this life, in that there will be no marriage in the age to come. Since people will live forever, there is no need for marriage and producing offspring to populate the earth. And relationships will operate differently in heaven. People will become like angels who do not eat or marry. And those worthy of the resurrection, the children of God, will be children of the resurrection. They will receive everlasting resurrection life. And on the second point, Jesus implied that not everyone will be resurrected. He spoke of those considered worthy to attain to their age. The point Jesus was making is this. Some risk being excluded from their age. Although this second point doesn't seem to relate to the question, but Jesus raised this issue as a warning of who will get to receive the resurrection to eternal life. Now, Jesus makes one final point. Jesus noted how God said to Moses that the Lord is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 to 6. So Jesus quotes from the first five books of the Bible which the Sadducees deem as authoritative. Jesus says there that God is God of the living, not of the dead. And if God is still God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as He spoke to Moses, Long after their deaths, they must somehow then be alive or present. You see, God is the God of promise for these patriarchs. And for them to share in the realization of this promise, they must live to see it. In other words, Jesus replied to on two forms. He says that the Sadducees' uh, marriage dilemma misunderstands the afterlife since marriage does not occur there. And therefore, just undermines their question because the question they pose is actually a pseudo-problem. And Jesus tells them that Scripture does teach resurrection in how it mentions the patriarchs. Scripture itself supposes God makes promises to them and that the afterlife is known. In that case, resurrection seems an appropriate deduction from the Old Testament. And we see this, right? In the rest of the Old Testament, even in Job, we see hints of the resurrection, which will be clearly seen in the New Testament. And we see this clearly at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. And on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we who trust in Jesus Christ will be raised together with Jesus Christ by our living God. The resurrection is a fundamental teaching of our Christian hope. 
and the reaction to Jesus' answer is instant. You know, some religious leaders, no doubt, or the Pharisees, you know, like his defense of the resurrection because he, he showed a one-up over the Sadducees. So they like his answer. But you also see Jesus silence all his opponents so that they do not want to ask him any more questions. His enemies have been soundly refuted. And the entire counter make a primary point that Jesus knows more about God's will and where he is going than his opponents. Jesus may be outnumbered, but we can trust him to teach the way of God. We've all heard of the cultural catchphrase, you only live once. And this phrase, YOLO, makes sense only if there is no afterlife and that this life is all there is. If this life is all there is, then it makes sense to live our lives to the fullest extent right now, defined culturally by taking risks, uh, embracing risks, breaking the rules and norms, and living up, it up solely for myself. In contrast to YOLO, if the resurrection is true, then there is more to this life than seeking to selfishly satisfy and pleasure ourselves. It means that we are also accountable to God who will raise us from the dead. We are accountable to this God who raised us from the dead in how we live this life. So my friends, ask yourself, how am I living right now as accountable to God? How are we living accountable to this God who will raise us from the dead? One way to think about this is if Jesus will return right now, Will he be pleased with the way you live regards to your school life, your family life, and your work life? Will Jesus be pleased with how you steward your finances and resources, your relationships with your neighbours, and your relationship with others in the church? Will Jesus be honoured by your devotion to God, your service for the church, and your efforts for the sake of the gospel? we are all accountable to God, whether we are Christians or non-Christians. And and to my non-Christian friends who may be listening in online here or present in person, there is bad news. Because the bad news for you is that you are accountable. Whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, you will be accountable for your selfish thoughts and misdeeds. You will be accountable for deeds undone and for rejecting God. But there is good news. And it's in the phrase that Jesus used in his reply to the Sadducees. Jesus used the phrase, considered worthy to attain to the age. That phrase there, considered worthy, means to be reckoned or counted worthy or declared worthy or righteous. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on what you merit. It's state is based off something that God accounts to you. What God did was to send His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a totally righteous life without sin and died on the cross in our place for our sins so that we might have this resurrection life. The Apostle Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, my friends, what happened is a great exchange took place on the cross. Jesus took on our sins and God accounts Jesus' righteousness to us. We are counted or declared right with God when we trusted in Jesus Christ and are considered worthy to attain to that age and receive everlasting life. So my friends, especially my non-Christian friends, I urge you to trust in Jesus Christ and what He, had done, he has done for us on the cross. And if this is your desire today, you can approach any of the pastors and elders after this service. You know, as, as Jesus was uh, confronting the religious leaders, in His time, there were monarchies and kingdoms and kings. And to be a subject in a kingdom, under a king, meant that you owed allegiance and loyalty to your king. Okay? It meant to submit to the rule of your king. So for the people then, to acknowledge someone as lord or king meant to submit to his authority. And Jesus' identity as Lord and King was the critical point in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 to 44. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the books of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What we see here is Jesus himself raising the final controversy in his conflict with the religious leaders in the temple. It dealt with the subject of the Messiah and asked about his identity. You see, during that time, one of the favorite identification of Messiah or God's anointed deliverer among the Jews was to mark him as the son of David. Jesus wanted to question the identification, not as wrong, but as incomplete. He used an argument where apparently two apparent conflicting ideas are presented together, not to deny the other, but to relate them to each other. At the centre of Jesus' discussion is Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110 verse 1. And, and this most popular Old Testament text is, was used by Jesus and the apostles and the early church. We see this in Acts, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Hebrews. This psalm is a royal promised psalm that speaks of the hope of Israel's ideal king. And the picture, picture language used to describe the right hand declares, declares the king's close relationship to God as his vice region. Jesus pointed out that David, as writer of Psalm 110, is the speaker of this promise. So what happens is this psalm presents, presented the promise made to David's descendants, the promise first made to David in 2 Samuel 7, hoping that David's line will be characterized by such a rule. Their expectation is heightened when the Messiah is seen as the subject of the psalm, for he will be everything the Davidic kingship should be and more. And the issue Jesus raised comes in the question of verse 44. Verse 44. Jesus is asking, if David is the speaker of this psalm, 
and he addresses the kingly messianic figure as his Lord. How then can the title Son of David be the best title for the Messiah? Because you must understand during that time, the cultural assumption in the question is the respect accorded to a patriarch or the father in their society. A father, okay, just like Asian societies, typically did not bow to a son. So the question is, why would David show this figure such respect, total respect and submit to him if he is his son rather than his ancestor? And this text here we see ends with no answer. And we see that Psalm 110 poses the same question for reflection. And this is how the Gospel writer Luke uses it. Because the issue here is the issue of Jesus' identity. And this will be the central point of debate as Jesus goes to the cross. And what emerged on the image of being seated at God's right hand is that Jesus is both Lord and Christ or Messiah. Lord means a master, uh, master. Jesus is the son of David, but more fundamental to his role as son of David is his role as Lord. And the title Lord expresses the kingly sovereignty Jesus possesses as God's promised kingly agent. If therefore David sowed such respect to the promised king, should not the Jewish religious leaders do the same? Though Jesus does not identify himself as Messiah here, this is implied in all the conversation that has been taking place. You see, Jesus is beginning to supply the answer to the question asked in Luke, 20, 20, uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 2 by the religious leaders. By what authority are you doing these things? And the simple answer, by God's authority. It is authority that David recognized when he called the promised descendant, my Lord. Jesus is both a descendant in the line of David and also David's Lord. Jesus is our Lord and He possesses kingly authority over us. My friends, ask yourself this question then. If Jesus, our Saviour, is indeed Lord, what areas of my life do I have to submit to His Lordship? To refuse to submit to your King's authority is rebellion. This rejection of Jesus as King is in, in essence what we Christians call sin. Sin is rebellion against the kingly rule of Jesus. So my friends, are there areas that you have sinned and rebelled against the rule of King Jesus? But there is grace because Jesus' words in the Bible offer hope for rebels like you and me, like us. Apostle John records in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins and repent, rebels like us will be forgiven and received by King Jesus. And my friends, repentance isn't just a once-off decision that you prayed once 
somewhere like 20 years down in your life that you once prayed to receive Jesus, that's not the definition of repentance. Repentance is an ongoing thing. Repentance is a lifestyle that marks believers. As we daily fight sin and come to Jesus for forgiveness. And the good news again is that Jesus has given us this means of grace to repent daily. He has given us His Holy Spirit who will work through His Word, the Bible, to empower and change us. And He has given us the church, this local church, the local church community, to speak scriptural truth in love to one another to fight sin. So my friends, I urge you, fight sin daily and turn to Jesus in repentance. Pray for God's Spirit to help you and to be, connect- and be connected to a community here at Grace Baptist Church and support one another in our fight against sin. And in doing so, may we increasingly submit all areas of our life to Jesus' Lordship. Now, I was hoping that Josh will be here. Josh and Tiffany will be here. I don't think they are here today, but if they are watching online, so a shout out to Josh and my Aussie friends. You know, Australia, Australians have an informal slang term called try hard. Okay, some of you studied Australia, you should know this term, try hard. A try hard describes someone who tries way too hard and spends too much time to be good at something that is pointless. Okay? So when the Aussie describes someone as a try-hard, it's like, you know, he's trying very hard doing something, but ultimately what he's doing is pointless, of no worth. Okay? And Jesus then next turned to a group of religious leaders, the scribes. And Jesus described the scribes basically as a bunch of religious try-hards. Because they were putting on a religious show that ultimately doesn't matter. We see this in Luke chapter 20, verse 45 to verse 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' house, houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus issues a final warning about the religious, uh, Jewish religious leaders to his disciples. He warned of the pride of the teachers of the law. And this is shown by their long robes and the special greetings that they like to receive in the marketplace, not to mention the priority given seats that they get in the synagogues and at feasts. Okay, so if the religious, the scribes were to come to GBC, you know, we will have special seats lined with cushion for them at the front two rows. They'll be seated right there, Right? And we see that this speaks of their pride because their pride leads to the elevation of the self that see others, such as widows, as tools to further their own goals. Because, my friends, credit and service comes because it's earned in sacrificial sacrifice, not because honour is gained by showy religious practices, undertaking just to show off one's importance. And in addition, Jesus here condemns the misuse of widows' fun. Widows in the society uh, then represented the most vulnerable in their society, whom the religious pious are supposed to serve. So Jesus is making a really serious charge here 
Because apparently, while managing a widow's affair, the teachers of the law, the scribe, took a large cut for themselves. And to make matters worse, their pretentious long prayers for others in the face of such corrupt practices just, just muddies the water and makes matters worse. Because God wants real mercy, not just religious exercise. Jesus warns that a greater condemnation is headed their way. They claim to lead the people and be examples of God's will, but their hypocrisy was exposed. My friends, the danger of reading Scripture is that when we read Scripture, the first thing we say is we distance ourselves from the text, we distance ourselves from the scribes, and we say, what? This is not me. Let Scripture be a mirror to our heart. Let us examine our hearts. Are we religious tryhards? Are we putting up a religious show so that we gain honour and praise for ourselves? Is there a large gap between our outward piety and our inward reality? Are we exalting self or magnifying Christ in our show of religion? You know, my friends, as I was preparing this text, this text is convicting even for me, or especially for me, since I'm always up in front of the platform. Because I often despair of the gap between my outward piety and my inward reality. This wrecks me, but then I turn my mind to the gospel and I thank God for Jesus Christ who gives grace and grants forgiveness to sinners, to religious tryhards like myself who repent. And in contrast, Jesus pointed to a poor widow as an example of service that pleases God. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This four verses shifts to a different type of response to God. In contrast to the Pharisees and the rich who showers gifts into the treasury, we see a poor widow coming with two copper coins. My friends, because contributions for running the temple then were placed in trumpet-shaped containers. So they had these containers of trumpet-shaped wide at the top, narrow at the bottom, okay? And there were 13 of them located in the court of women where the widow was. And on top of that, there was an officer who oversaw the collection and often counted what had been given, you know? And, and the wealthy criticised by Jesus often made a show of their contributions. You know, you can imagine them coming with a huge bag of coins and then as they empty the coins into this uh, container, this trumpet-shaped container, the many coins will make a loud rattling noise as they pour down the trumpet-shaped giving boxes. And on top of that, you have an officer there, you know, loudly announcing the count for the contributions. 5,000 gold coins, you know. On, in contrast, the copper coins the widow gave were the smallest one made. Okay? The each was worth only one of 100 of a denarius. And this represented only five minutes of labour at a minimum wage. You can almost imagine as the widow 
puts the two copper coins into the trumpet-shaped container, it hardly makes a sound. And you can imagine the officer there, you know, can't even be bothered to announce. Maybe just turn his head, ignore the widow. But the widow here, she was not looking for human credit. But she was looking at how she can humbly serve God. And we see that God does not see things as we do. God does not count. He weighs. God weighs the heart. And you see Jesus, Jesus called this widow's gift the greatest gift of those that His disciples had been observing. Because others gave out their excess and they had a lot left in abundance. So they will hardly miss what was tossed in for the temple. So for the rich, it's almost like rules change. But this woman gave out of her poverty. She wholeheartedly gave what little she has. Even though she needed these two copper coins to live on for the day, Jesus called that real giving and it earned Jesus' praise. Real giving comprises not the size of your giving, but on your heart attitude behind the giving. As missionary Paul Krustra writes, the question is not how large is my gift going to be to God's kingdom work. The real question is how large a place will God have in my life? If God has a primary and prominent place in my heart and my life, then my giving will be generous and sacrificial. I won't think twice about it. If King Jesus, my friends, the son of David, whom God raised from the dead, is the central focus of your life, then your response will be a generous and sacrificial giving and serving. Because God in Jesus Christ has already given us so much and because of our loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus, we give and we serve. So my friends, what is my heart attitude as I serve Jesus, son of David, whom God raised from the dead? How large a place will God have in your life? How is this seen in your giving and your serving? Now a word also to the Christian idea of stewardship. You know, the popular Christian principle, it is biblical, but sometimes it's been taken out of Scripture and used as a mere financial principle divorced from the context of Scripture. Because if you look at stewardship in Scripture, it is always stewardship for the sake of the gospel. It's not so much that we can have a healthy budget or a healthy church budget, because if the latter is true, then look at the widow. The widow could be faulted for being a poor steward. She did not do her budget well and she gave all she had to God for God's purposes. How then will she live? Look again with me to the parable of talents in Matthew 25. The servants were to steward the talents, not just to steward the talents, but they were steward the talents for the sake of the master's work, for the master's sake. Biblical stewardship is always giving and serving for the sake of the gospel, for God's glory, even if it may not make 
financial sense to us, but it's always for the sake of the gospel, for God's glory. And at this point, you know, I've been encouraged. No, I want to encourage and thank you, members of Grace Baptist Church, for your generous and sacrificial giving. You know, I'm not really good with numbers. The only time I was a treasurer, a treasurer was in my society in the NUS, and I ended up coming up with more money on my pocket you know, when I was doing the accounts. So I'm not great with numbers, but I know and am able to compare at least generally what's been happening. And the reports that I've been seeing, the financial reports I've been seeing, showed that us, GBC, despite being in this challenging COVID-19 pandemic times, this year's monthly giving is more than what we gave when compared month to month to 2020 or even 2019. I thank God, GBC, I thank God for the stewardship of your finances and resources for the sake of the gospel. Pray for us then as a church to use these resources wisely for God's purposes and for His glory. Finally, a TLDR, a too long didn't read for those who have short extension span like me. We are to wholeheartedly serve King Jesus, David's Lord, whom God raised from the dead and exalted to His right hand. So for those of you who want to take a picture of this, you can do this. So if you remember nothing from this sermon, can you just remember this? Right? In closing, George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, Christian minister, and he was a mentor to fellow writer C.S. Lewis. So George MacDonald wrote a poem, The Widow with Two Mites. Allow me to just read this for us as I read the episode. So let's listen as I read this for us. Bring forth your riches, let them go, nor mourn the lost control. For if ye hoard them, surely so, they are rust, will reach your soul. Cast in your coins, for God delights, when from white hands they fall. But here is one who brings two mites, and thus give more than all. I think she did not hear the praise, when home content with need, walk in her old poor generous ways, nor knew her heavenly meat. And meet here means deserve share of praise and honour. My friends, by her wholehearted, generous service and giving, the widow obtained the praise of Jesus, the applause of heaven, and received the delight of God. Grace Baptist Church, may we also know the pleasure and joy of God as we generously and sacrificially give and serve. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for King Jesus who died for our sins and was raised for our resurrection life. Lord God, may we bring you much delight as you empower us to serve sacrificially and give generously for the cause of the gospel so that through our service and giving, Jesus Christ might be worshipped and followed as King Jesus, David's Lord, whom you, God, raised from the dead and exalted to your right hand. We pray this for the renown of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.